grab a seat, and we can, let's pray. God, we thank you for this time we can come together. We thank you for the noise of our families uh, from young to old, and that together you have called us to be your people. So we just ask today, God, that you would open our hearts to what you would say. You would give us wisdom to understand your voice, that our ears would be attuned to you, and that you could shape us through this act of, of surrender to your, your text, to your word, into, into the image of Jesus, and help us to live that way in the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How's everybody this morning? Sound is really weird. Are they fixing it? They are fixing it. There's, there are furrowed brows in the sound booth. People thinking, should I use a different mic? Is this better now? Should I turn it off, turn it on? That always helps, right? You t- just keep going. Just keep talking. Just keep talking. So th- what I do? <laughs> I won't take that personally at all. What, we do, what I do best, says Sig. Oh, that's funny. Um, turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 61. We're working our way through the season of Lent, this time of reflecting uh, on our own life in preparation for the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, right? We, we, just as Jesus went on this journey to the cross, we kind of walk with him and are taking a, some reflection of our own life uh, and, and moving toward that place uh, where we can celebrate fully the resurrection. And what we've been doing over the, the period of Lent is looking at, we've, we've been in Matthew, and we're looking at quotes that Matthew took from the book of Isaiah and kind of laying the two together and talking about what Matthew was saying in light of what Isaiah had said. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, instead of taking a direct quote, I want to look at, at, at some passages in Isaiah that kind of laid the foundation for Matthew chapter 5, especially the Beatitudes. Um, I think it's really important because Isaiah 61, 1-3 helps us to begin to understand the context around the Beatitudes. It's really important that we get that. Uh, the Beatitudes really probably some of the most famous and well-known of Jesus' teachings. Most people have at least heard the phrasing, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But often the things that we've heard a lot are the things that we kind of gloss over and we don't really listen to them. We, we think we know them because we've heard them so many times. And, and it's important to reconnect to the context of what these words came into. Well, what was happening in the people who heard them? What was going on around them to help us understand them? Uh, I was reminded of how important context is on our vacation which some of you, if you follow Angela on Facebook, saw pictures from. Uh, we, we just got back. We were two weeks in France. And uh, if you know me, you know that I'm not much of an art guy. Like, I like paintings. I like good pictures. My mother was a beautiful artist, right? I love to look at her pictures. But I'm not the kind of guy that sits and stares at a painting for an hour and is moved deeply by the brush. Stri- That's just not me, right? Um, I, I appreciate those kind of people. Uh, I'm just not one of them. But our, what happened to me on our vacation was interesting because we, we, uh, we, we went to a place called Arles. Now, how many of you know who this guy is? Anybody know who that is? 
Vincent Van Gogh. I learned that uh, North Americans tend to say his name Van Gogh, and the British tend, tend to say his name Van Gogh, and the Dutch tend to say his name Van Gogh. So I'm, I'm American, Canadian, so I'm going to say Van Gogh, but we, I'm sure how he said it was the right way, but I don't know how that was. Anyway, this is one of his self-portraits. Van Gogh painted in the 1800s, and he was the selfie king of the 1800s because he actually painted 48 self-portraits, 48 different ones, right? He was, he was where selfies started, those pictures, right? Uh, and I knew who he was. When I saw that picture, I knew it was Van Gogh. I could recognize some of his paintings. I was aware of that, but they didn't really mean that much to me until we went to this little town called Arles. And Google, as I was planning my trip, told me that Van Gogh had painted a large number of paintings, of his paintings, around 200 of his paintings, were done in Arles and the area around it over a two-year period. And so Angela and I were there, and we had a, a morning before we went on to another town. We thought, let's, let's do the Van Gogh walk, because the Tourist Bureau had this Van Gogh walk where you could go and see where he had painted. I thought, okay, why not? We got the morning. Um, and so... The night before we went on this walk, I went back to Google, and I learned a little bit about Van Gogh's life. And it was interesting, he was the son of a minister. I didn't know that, but, but people described his dad, like people described many ministers, as very cold and very hard, not very kind. And that the understanding in the Van Gogh family as he grew up was that he would be a minister, and he was not quite fitting that mold. And, and it, it caused a lot of tension in the home as he grew up, seeking to, to be whatever he was supposed to be. And, and he also struggled with mental illness. There's a lot of different diagnoses of what he struggled with, whether it's bipolar, schizophrenic. He really struggled with that through his life. He had, vi he had episodes and visions. He heard voices. Lots of things went on for him. Uh, he died at the age of 37 from what most believe was suicide. And 37, when I was a kid, that seemed like old, right? But now that I'm over 50, 37, that's a child. And to think this guy is so well-known in the art world, and he died at the age of 37. And I also read in the story that during his lifetime, he only sold one painting. Nobody really appreciated his art until after he was gone. Now, all those things started having kind of an effect on me, and I, I grew to where I was interested in this guy. And so, so the next morning we got up and we started at this one. The, the, he painted this yellow house where he lived. Now, the house is no longer there, but the building behind it is still there. So you can kind of see where he painted his own. And so we stood there, and, and look, this isn't the actual painting, by the way. This is a copy of the painting. But it was kind of neat to say, oh, he used to live right there. And this is the painting. And then, then we moved on to another where he painted a cafe, Right? You see where he painted the cafe? And that's the actual cafe that he painted. And I learned that the cafe wasn't yellow at that time. It was just the lighting, and he painted a lot of yellow. And so they actually later on, after this, as a marketing ploy, painted the cafe yellow to make it look. You know, that was interesting to me. And then we, we, we went on because you've heard about Van Gogh that he cut off a part of his ear, right? And he, he was in this particular hospital when that happened. And this is the courtyard, a painting he did of the courtyard. And you walk through there, and it... It was fascinating to begin to experience that with the context as we walked around and saw the paintings at the very spot he painted them from as, as we started thinking about his story and what it would have been like for him in this situation. They began to have new meaning and interest to me, so much so that a few days later we spent an afternoon 
at this monastery slash mental asylum where he went after he cut off his ear. There's a picture. I mean, that's his room. That's where he stayed. And I, I was, it's not a very fancy room. It's nothing earth shattering, but I was really moved standing in that room thinking about that young man struggling with his gift of art and his schizophrenia and his bipolar and thinking, wow, his life ended way too soon. And I just felt I, I was able to appreciate him in a different way, richer, deeper, sadder, because of the context around it. And what I want to do today is, is help you get the context around the Beatitudes, to really realize what was going on there. And, and one of the things we have to realize as we read the, the Beatitudes is that the message of Jesus was resonating with the audience with an ancient longing, one that they had had for many, many, many years. The history of the Jews since the time of Isaiah had been very difficult. They had been defeated, they had been exiled, they had been oppressed, there had been pain and suffering. They were not a victorious crowd or, or nation very often at all through those 800 years up before Jesus. And, and when there are painful things like this, how many of you have had painful times in your life? Anybody ever had painful times in your life? And words of hope are like breath to you. You just cling to them. If there's any flash of hope, and, and Isaiah was speaking words like Isaiah 40, verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up, do not be afraid, say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. There was this, these words of the prophet that, that just connected very, very deeply with the people who were longing for something better, right? Talk about painful moments, right? There we are. And then Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. For 800 years, the people had been suffering and clinging to these words of hope that maybe God's not forgotten us, that maybe something good will come. And then this text in Isaiah 61, the first three verses, a message of someone that would come, that would come one day, the suffering servant, the prophet was talking about this future person who was coming. Listen, Isaiah 61, 1 to 3, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me, the Messiah, to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. As, as you hear that, think of that broken moment in your life. Think of the time when you felt like, God, where are you? And these words come into it that there's, there's, there's hope, there's, there's beauty that's going to, the ashes you have will be replaced with beauty. The, the mourning is going to be overtaken by joy. There's these beautiful, powerful words that you just cling to when you need them. Now, that's why these Beatitudes 
and the things Jesus was saying were so important to the audience. You see, there was an ancient longing that they addressed, but there was also the specific occasion and the audience of the people that heard them. Turn over to Matthew, the end of chapter 4. Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's saying something. He's saying the kingdom of God, this thing you guys have been longing for, for all these years, has come near to you. And then people start coming to him, right? Verses 18 to 22, you see Peter and Andrew and James and John, these fishermen. Now, that, it's interesting that it's fishermen. These aren't the people that you would think the Messiah would call to follow him. But he says to them, follow me. Come with me. Follow me. All of a sudden, there's these people starting to get drawn to Jesus and this kingdom that he says is coming near. And then look at the other people that started coming to him. Verse 23 of chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. You've got to realize the people coming to him were the ones that everybody would have said God has forgotten. They're the broken ones. They're the suffering ones. They're the ones who have no place in the kingdom of God because they're so messed up. They're the margins of society, the, the outcasts, the spiritual zeros. And this is the audience, because if you look at chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 1, it says, now when he, when Jesus saw the crowds, when he saw all these people... He went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. That's the context. All these broken people everywhere coming to Jesus. Jesus sees them and he goes up on the mountain and his disciples come to him and then he starts to sit down and teach them something. And this is what he says. Matthew 5, 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, when we start to see the context of these words, of this sermon, this, these beatitudes, it, when we, we understand what's going on around it, it begins to shape the way we see it. And, and I think we have to admit sometimes we really misread the Beatitudes. That the reality in the context is that they are less a pathway to and more a reality of. Now what do I mean by that? Jesus is not saying to his disciples, 
You need to be poor in spirit to, do, to, be, to, to please me. You need to mourn to be welcomed into the kingdom. He's saying to the disciples, you guys see this crowd of people? You see everybody out there? You see who they are? Those are the people that are blessed. Those are the people that are welcomed into the kingdom. Those are the ones who, who the world thinks they're forgotten, and yet I want you, disciples, to understand these are the very people that the kingdom comes to. Stanley Hauervoss, a, a theologian, says, too often those characteristics of the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those that mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted, are turned into ideals we must strive to attain. And as ideals, they become formulas for power rather than descriptions of the kind of people characteristic of the new age brought by Christ. For the Beatitudes are not general recommendations for anyone, but describe those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. When we don't understand the context, we turn this into a list of things that we have to do to get God to like us. I need to be this way. I need to do this. And the context around it is actually God saying to the disciples, these are the people I've come for. These are the people the kingdom is all about. These are the people that are welcomed into it. This came home to me years and years ago, right after I came here. There was a friend of mine who didn't go to church here. She's since passed on. But she was really struggling with some, some emotional baggage. And, and we were talking in my office one day. And she told me a story. She said, I need to tell you something that I've hardly ever told anybody. I said, okay, go ahead. And she said, uh, when I was 21 years old, I was an alcoholic. I had four kids under the age of six. And, and I met a guy in a bar that asked me to run away with him. And I knew... I wanted to do that, to try something different because my life was horrible. And she said, so one morning I woke up and I got my four kids dressed. I took the oldest who was six and I said, you guys are going to walk two doors down to my friend's house who's a social worker. You're going to play with her kids this morning. I've got some stuff I need to do. And so the six-year-old took the others in tow, went down to the social worker's house and she packed up and she left never to come back. Now, since then, she had reconnected with her kids. Obviously, there's brokenness and pain there, but she just sat there with this heaviness weighing on her of this horrible thing she had done. <laughs> and I sit there saying, okay, what do I do with this? God, what do you, what do you say to that? And, and somewhere, the Spirit prompted in me this question. Wouldn't it feel better if somebody just came and beat you up right now to pay for that? And she looked up at me and said, yeah, it would. I wish somebody would come and just absolutely destroy me for what I've done because I've carried the guilt of that my whole life. And I just wish there was some way. I wish somebody would come and make me pay for what I did. And I said, that's the cross. That's, that's where God takes the punishment we deserve on himself and forgives us and loves us. And she just burst into tears. And see the reality of that situation brought home to me the fact that we're not welcomed into the kingdom of heaven because we're good enough. We're welcomed into the kingdom of heaven because broken people are the kind of people that God loves. 
And, and there's something important for us to realize. And, 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 and this context of the Beatitudes helps us understand the radical nature of the Beatitudes. What Jesus is actually saying, hopefully reconnecting to the context, helps us to read the text really differently. What the Beatitudes do as he teaches is they turn the social thinking, the order of the day, on its head. This is radically different than anybody else's things anybody else is saying about God. Let's, let's just look at them quickly. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that those who have nothing have everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've often seen poor in spirit as some sense of humility or modesty. Oh, I'm, yeah, it's not me, it's God. Right? Oh, praise the Lord, it's only Him working. We, that's kind of what we think of as poor in spirit. But it's literally the people who have nothing to offer. That's who it is. And that's welcome news for people who for centuries have been longing for good news to come to them in their brokenness. It's welcome news for us today because when it comes right down to it, let's be honest, we don't have to really work at being poor in spirit, do we? How many of you have a lot to offer God? Raise your hand if you have a lot. We have ourselves to offer God, but if we're honest about ourselves, we are poor in spirit. We don't have much to offer here. And, and God says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have nothing, because they have everything in the kingdom of heaven. And we look at the next three in verses 4, 5, and 6. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Really, those next three are describing their and our situation. What do I mean by this? Well, the, the three actually kind of work together. If you go to the last one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We use a statement in our house, and I'm sure it's, it's, it's a word that's not been in our vernacular very long, but it's very common now. And when I say it, you're going to know what it is. We use the word hangry in our house. Do you know what that is? Hangry? That is when you are so hungry that you are angry. Hangry. And you know that with kids, right? There comes, a, there comes a point with a kid that if that kid doesn't eat something, he's going to rip the house down board by board. He is going to destroy everything around him. Hangry. And, and I love that word because very often in our hunger and thirst for righteousness, we, in our context, without realizing what's being said, sometimes we think of righteousness as this perfection. What it means in, in the Greek word really is the right thing being done. You know, we talk about, well, I'm going to do right by you. I'm going, to do the right, I'm going to do right by you. That's righteousness, the right thing happening. And there is times in our life when we are so hungry and thirsty for the right thing to happen that it, it gets us hangry. Do you know what I'm saying? There's a, something broken about our world. There's a huge tragedy in our community this week and the, the loss of the elementary school secretary, Mrs. Loring. And all of us have felt that know her, have felt like this is just not right what a lovely lady, so young, and why? There's, we, we hunger and thirst for things to be different than they are. And that, that's, that's, these people, 
that the disciples are looking at that Jesus is talking about have lived for 800 years longing for stuff just to be made right. We, do, we don't ask for much. We just don't want to be oppressed. We don't want the world to be broken. We don't want people to suffer. We don't want people to die. We want injustice to end. See, people who feel these things, that hunger, for thirst, hunger and thirst for righteousness, you know what they do when they feel them? They mourn. They mourn because we feel like, oh, this is the saddest thing ever. Now, what we do in our society, I'll be honest, we distract ourselves from that feeling of mourning. We try to get, get active or busy. We just try to distract us. But what, what he's saying is that hunger and thirst for righteousness is also mourning is a part of that because you just want something to be different. And, and, and as you mourn, you live life with meekness. You know what meekness is? Meekness is a realization of the fact that you really have no power. You, you, you can't do anything about it. We're hungry for it to be different, and it causes us to mourn, but we realize in our meekness that, that we just can't make it. We can't fix it. As much as we want to, we can't. See, this was the situation of the people listening in that crowd. It's our situation, too. How many of you felt overwhelmed, like I say, by the evil in the world? by the brokenness. You're hungry and you're thirsty for things to be different. And it's taken you at times to the point of mourning. And if you let yourself feel there, you just feel powerless. And what Jesus says in these difficult moments when we have nothing to offer, he says that hunger and thirst will be satisfied in the kingdom of God. And those of you who mourn because of the brokenness in the world will be comforted in the kingdom of God. And, and those who are meek, that have no power, they'll inherit the whole earth. The kingdom of God is radically different. See, it's not a message of how to be blessed, but a message that says you are blessed right where you are because the kingdom of God, as he said in verse, chapter 4, verse 17, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Things are changing. There's, a, there's something on the scene now that has never been here. And in this situation of brokenness and powerlessness and hungering and thirsting, mourning and meekness, there are some things that we can do that come after that. We, we can show mercy. Blessed are the merciful. We can show mercy. That is one thing we can do. We're meek. We realize we can't change everything, but we can be merciful in these small places. And we can make peace. Verse 9. Have you ever waded into a situation where two people were mad at each other and tried to make peace? Have you ever done that? You know what happens every single time? If you're trying to be honest about the situation before it's over, they will both be mad at you. Right? You've been there? Because you're trying to get this person to see it from this person's perspective and vice versa. And, and he says, blessed are the people who wade in there in the middle of this messy world and bring, try to bring peace. I love that because he says, these people will be called children of God. You get that? Because that's what God does. God wades into brokenness and, and brings peace. And when you do that, you look like your, your father. These people are, they have a family resemblance. And, and, you know, that meekness and mourning, when we realize we really can't fix it, but we're offering mercy, we're trying to make peace, that often comes from a place of being pure in heart. See, so much of our good actions are motivated to get, by getting something. But the kind of people who are broken and needy and yet offer mercy and seek peace, very often realize, I may not get anything out of this. I just want the world to be a better place. There's that idea of being pure in heart. 
See, when we realize the limits of what we can do, the brokenness of who we are and, and the, the brokenness of the world, but the fact that we are welcomed into the kingdom of God, that we're loved by him, when we do that, all of a sudden it sets us free to live in ways that offer mercy and that seek peace, even if we don't get it. And, and then the last part of the, the Beatitudes <laughs> talks about the impact of the kingdom. You see, as people start, Jesus realizes what the disciples, if they get what he's saying, they are going to be laughed at, they're going to be persecuted because they are going to love the people he loves. They're going to value things that society doesn't value. Those who receive grace where they are and they offer it to others are often subject to criticism and persecution by others because it's a different way of life. It disrupts the way everybody else thinks the world should be. See, the world wants this to be a list of a pathway to blessing. If I just do these things, if I tick all the right boxes, I'll be happy, healthy, successful, and God will like me. That's what the world wants to make out of this list. And what Jesus is saying is, look at those people. Those are the people that are welcomed into the kingdom, even though they have nothing to offer. And if you live that way, you live radically different than the way the world lives. And it's going to cost. People aren't going to understand that. And it's important that we we get this, especially during the time of Lent, because this is good news for dark places. See, the, the good news coming to these people who've lived in dark and broken places is a welcome addition to our own journey. We've been reflecting on our own lives, looking at the, the junk that we find in our own life. And the question is, how do we apply this good news of the Beatitudes into our life? Well, here's, here's three things I want to leave you with. First, We have to start by welcoming our own reality. We often come to the Beatitudes trying to be something that we're not. We see them as this list. I need to be pure in heart. I need to be mournful. What does that mean? I don't know how to do that. Or some of you say, I do know how to do that. I'm I'm a specialist. I'm in the the place I am in my life. We think this is what God's calling us to be. but, But the reality of the Beatitudes is this is God coming to people who have nothing to offer. And you know, I often say in sermons, we have to be honest and acknowledge the truth about ourselves. But I said something different this morning. I said we need to start welcoming our own reality. That's different than acknowledging it. It's welcoming it. To know that we are poor in spirit with nothing to offer. To know that we hunger and thirst for things to be made better. To admit that we mourn and feel powerless. And to welcome what that says about us. That we are needy. I had a conversation with a guy who, who's been very deeply hurt by another guy. And he said to me, he said, I just cannot get that off my mind. Now, this, this guy talking to me, he's, he's been legitimately hurt. What the other guy did was horrible to him. And he said, I'm so angry about this situation that I just, I hate the guy. I can't, I just can't seem to, fr- he's in my mind all the time. And see, in that situation, what I'm saying here is we, we tend to want to suppress that. We've got to get rid of that. That's hor- Instead of just saying, God, this, I am so angry at this guy. Welcoming that situation and letting the kingdom come into that. I'm not saying we want to keep being angry. I'm saying we've got to first welcome the reality that we're in. To admit, I am poor in spirit. I am needy. I am broken. You know, after Peter caught this miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5.8, says, when he saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. 
part of the Lenten journey is realizing who you really are. Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah 6, Woe to me, I cried, he says, I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, one, one of the things we do in worship, there's always a song or a reading of confession because part of worship is realizing who you actually are and admitting that, welcoming that. God, this is me. Thank goodness that the kingdom is for me, despite who I am. That's the whole Lenten journey. Now, the second thing that ties to that is that we, as we walk through that, as we realize the brokenness within us, we have to make sure we're avoiding the temptation to distraction. Because it's, it's hard to welcome who you are. We don't like to think about who we really are, about our own needs and our brokenness. Because our world has told us, you're just fine the way you are. And what the scripture says is, no, you're not. You're still loved, but you aren't just fine as you are. God wants to make you something different. And so we need to avoid the temptation to be distracted. We want to run from that feeling of meekness and, and, and powerlessness and poverty of spirit. We want to hide from it. Like Mary and Martha, right? In Luke 10, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha's like, oh, I just got to get this stuff done. I'm so busy. And Jesus says, Mary, there's only really one thing that needs to be done. And Mary's doing it. Right? Martha's distracting herself from who she is by being busy. We do the same thing. We do it by filling our lives with stuff. We do it by turning to a screen every spare second we've got. I don't know, Jake shared a couple weeks ago. If you didn't hear that sermon two weeks ago, you should go online and listen to it about his own laying down word games. Yeah, he's a weird guy. Any guy that likes to play word games on his phone is kind of weird. But if, how many of you heard that analogy? Jake said, I, I always would go and I'd play word games on my phone, but for Lent, I gave that up. And I realized a week or two later that all of a sudden I was feeling this sadness about things going on in the world. I was hungering and thirsting for righteousness and, and mourning. And the, the thing was, he had stopped being distracted from what was going on inside of him to actually feel it. And welcome it. And see, sometimes we, we just try to distract ourselves from that. And what, what I'm saying is, part of the beauty is going to that point of brokenness and need and realizing that the kingdom of God is still for you at that point. We fill our lives with distractions to the point that we're not even feeling reality anymore. Lent helps us to create space for that welcome who we are, and then to realize that the one who calls us, calls us to follow his example, to be showing mercy, making peace. You know, another Old Testament prophet summed up what God wants from us in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. You know, Jesus fulfilled the Beatitudes. He was broken, he mourned, he was hungry for righteousness, he made peace, he did all those things, and he says, follow me in that. And see, this is the reality. If we actually go to that point where we welcome our poverty of spirit, our brokenness, and our need, if we can go there and say, this, God, this is who I am, I'm not going to put up a fake me anymore, I'm not going to try to make myself look better than I am, this is who I am, then God can say, blessed are you, welcome to the kingdom. And when that happens... 
Something in you changes. When you, in your worst, when that lady who shared her story with me brought her worst and put it there on the table and heard that God still loves her, there's something transformative that happened. See, this is that, that we are blessed despite the state of our lives, not because of how good we are, but, but in spite of how good we aren't. And as we do that, as we go through that process, it frees us to be merciful. It frees us to love the peace that God has given to us and to try to offer it to others. Freely you've received, freely give. It, it, it frees us to realize that even if people persecute us, nobody can take away what we've been given in the kingdom of God. See, these Beatitudes describe the way the kingdom works. That the kingdom comes and it welcomes and it blesses the needy and the marginalized. It blesses those who have nothing to offer. And then it says to you, will you admit that that's you? Will you admit you have nothing to offer and realize that even when you have nothing to offer, God says, welcome into the kingdom. If you can let the the grace of God penetrate to that level, that begins to transform you into a person who's free to love, who's free to serve, who's free to give mercy, who's free to make peace, who's free to live in a way that the world will not understand. Let's pray. God, we, we use these Beatitudes as, as a list, a checkoff list, so many times. And please just help us to realize that we don't measure up. Just this table in front of us says that very thing. We need something bigger something outside of us, something we need to be welcomed despite who we are, not because of who we are. We're so thankful that that is your very nature, that you became flesh, that you lived, you died, you rose again to open a doorway for us. So as we come to this table today, speak to us. Remind us of who we are and then overwhelm who we are with who you are and your grace, mercy, and welcome the blessing that you give to all people who are willing to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are a Baptist church, and in Baptist churches, people do say amen out loud, okay? So I'm going to ask you a question, and if the answer to the question is yes, I want you to say amen, okay? Who here is needy and poor in spirit? Okay, that's really, that's pretty needy. Who here is needy and poor in spirit? Say amen. Amen. I want you to hear the words of Jesus for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a gift. And we get to to go out now and live in light of that. That's my prayer for you this week, that you can go realizing that even though you have nothing to offer, God has given you everything and invites you to share it with the world around you. Amen. Amen.